Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and undoing the programming within us. Let's find your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. Hey, welcome back to The Great Unlearn. This week's guest is a dear brother of mine from Austin, Aubrey Marcus. If you're not familiar with Aubrey, he's the founder of On It, which is an Austin-based lifestyle brand that focuses on total human optimization. Personally, I love that they use the word optimization instead of maximization. And if you listen to my solo cast, the very first episode of The Great Unlearn, you'll understand why. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of the book, Own Your Day, Own Your Life. It's a well-designed and intentional look at how we can optimize each moment of the day. Now, by doing so, what do we do? We create the change we wish to see in ourselves. We go deep into this in the episode, so I think you're really going to enjoy that part. He's also the host of the Fit for Service Mastermind, as well as the incredibly successful self-titled Aubrey Marcus podcast. And Aubrey's one of those people in the podcast world that came before me that have inspired me to share my story candidly and authentically. So thanks, Aubrey, for showing up that way. Now, above all that stuff, which is all cool as shit, I'm most grateful for him being a dear brother of mine. He and I have shared some transformational experiences both in Austin and in Sedona. Now, At the recording of this intro, we were all supposed to be in Sedona doing another men's tribal retreat. That's pushed off until a later date. Now, this episode starts off with a bang with my asking Aubrey an innocent enough question about the man he was when he went by the name Chris. That was his original first name. Now, it was literally the one question I had teed up. I was curious. I had never asked him. I've known the guy for over two years. I've never asked him about it. We go down this rabbit hole that was awesome. And so it's just a reminder to me, just be curious, dude, and see what happens. From there, we talk about DMT, or rather Aubrey does. And don't worry, folks. I had him pause and explain exactly what DMT is. Talk about the founding of Onnit. We talk about the newest book that he's working on. We talk about him going to Poland with a group of brothers to visit the Wim Hof. Yes, that Wim Hof looked like an epic trip, and he explained some of it, although we didn't get too deep into it. That's another thing I want to address later on. From there, Aubrey went to Germany to experience a six-day darkness retreat. Yeah. I thought I had some balls going to a five-day silent retreat. Uh, it's nothing compared to what Aubrey experienced. And so he shares so much of that experience. It was fascinating to hear him discuss like the struggles in the darkness and what he was able to take away from that experience. He gets pretty emotional in the sharing. And so I think you're going to really appreciate that part as well. From there, we discuss 
the importance of tribe, something that he and some other brothers have modeled for me in the past and something that has been so important to my awakening, my awareness, to the things that I brought back to my brothers and sisters. And so thanks for that. We close with Aubrey's great intention for the second half of his life. Oh, we also talk about his recent birthday and there's a video on Instagram. That we, we reference it in the episode. You got to check it out. It's like Aubrey's birthday from two years ago versus what it was this year. It's a stark difference. And so you're going to appreciate that as well. Now, listen, this is what I'll say. I think you're going to enjoy this episode because of the way Aubrey shows up in the wisdom that he has to share. And, and I say this in the episode, and these aren't hollow words. Like for me, to speak from direct experience, which is how Aubrey lives his life, he may learn about something by reading it or hearing about it in a podcast, but he's not going to tell you about it until he's had his hands and feet involved in the experience. And so he's just another one of the men and women that have shown up for me to show me the importance of speaking only from direct experience. So that's, and that's one of the greatest lessons I've learned in the last couple of years. On to the great unlearned business. Go to thegreatunlearned.com slash newsletter. Sign up for the newsletter to stay up to date on all things happening with obviously the newsletter, but podcast guests and Zoom calls. We just did another great Zoom call on Sunday with my pal, Derek Pang, where Derek took all of us through some breath work, mobility, and yoga over the course of a mere 20 minutes. And by all of us, I mean everyone in the family as there were a bunch of kids that participated. Now, it was a lot of fun. It was an amazing reset, especially for me. I came in with a bit of tension. So thanks, Derek, for holding the session. We're going to be doing these movement and mindfulness, that's what we're calling them, Zoom calls for two more weeks. So be sure to tune in. If you missed the first two, go to my YouTube channel, The Great Unlearn, and you'll see the recordings of the previous two episodes. Follow along. You don't have to just do it on Sunday. Do it whenever you want. It's been a great reset for us. So I encourage you to do the same. Also, Aubrey and I are working on a collaboration to bring the community together, our Austin community and the one nationwide, through the shared experience of music, comedy, and storytelling. Through this medium, we're going to be raising money and awareness for those in the service industry that have been hit really hard by this current COVID-19 crisis. So it's our way to try to serve those that have served us for so many years. And so please be on the lookout for that. We love your support, even if it's just tuning in and sharing the message, but be on the lookout. Aubrey and I will be sharing more details as they come to light, but we're, we're in process right now. So enjoy this episode and we'll talk soon. I don't. I I kind of don't know where to begin. Um, as I was preparing for this, because I tried to prepare for all my podcasts. Um, so today I have on Aubrey Marcus. Known you for the better part of two and a half years, and you know, and just thinking about the podcast in general, like you've been certainly been one of my muses for this, and 
I mean, I've listened to a ton of podcasts, but I was always drawn to yours and to Kyle's in the authenticity and sincerity. In the way that you show up vulnerably, you're open to the critics. You have many. Fucking, it's, there's, <laughs> there's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and how you lean into that learning. And um, I think that's what probably drew me to you the most. First, really through listening to you, but as I've gotten to know you, the way you show up, um, and so it's such an it's it's such an honor to have you on today and to of course, to share your story, your medicine. I mean, as I said before, we got on. This is going to go wherever it goes. It's not the only time you're going to be on this podcast. You have so much to share that um, that again that I've learned so much from you directly and indirectly. You've been such a great teacher. And we'll get into some of the ways that that you've really shown up in my life, and particularly in the opportunity that um, that that you present to these group of men to go out to Sedona and really, you know, have an experience there that's really hard to replicate anywhere else. And so we'll get into that later on um, because is one of the main things in my podcast and what I'm trying to share with with men and women, but really men in particular, is the importance of tribe, what it means to show up for one another, um, and how it's impacted my life. And I want to bring on people who have created those frameworks in my life. Um, and you, as, as much as any person in my life, has, has really demonstrated that. And it's been probably the greatest teacher for me going forward to know that I don't have to fucking do this alone. And for so long, I thought I had to. Mm. And in doing that, it created a lot of strife, particularly with my wife, Peyton, because I was the the rock and the provider. And I wasn't the one, you know, the vulnerable one that said, hey, this is what's really hurting. So anyway, that's mm-hmm. enough for me. Let's start with Chris Marcus. Mm. You know, I thought that might be an interesting place to start because I don't you think know, a lot of people know that story. You know, what's funny is when I was in the darkness retreat, which for those of you who don't know, mm-hmm. I spent six days in the absolute pitch darkness, pitch silence. Although they did have this thing called an Om box, which was a 15 second loop of some Indian monks chanting Om over and over again, which is also maddening. So it was either complete <laughs> silence or a 15 <laughs> second loop. So you pick your poison there, but for the most part, silence. And, you know, complete isolation for that period. And you have a lot of time and it starts mind versus mind. And then, you know, kind of the vision state opens up from um, what can only be described as an endogenous production of DMT. Although a vivisection of the brain hasn't conclusively proven that the brain does produce DMT in that fashion. I'm pretty fucking confident that it does based on my own experience with DMT. And talk about just... Talk about DMT because I don't think a lot of my listeners know what the fuck DMT is. And yeah, so, so DMT is a DMT is a psychoactive compound that's contained in most every living plant that you see and uh, and every living thing. And it, when taken in high enough quantities in the proper fashion, either by utilizing in ayahuasca, it's the active ingredient, and they use MAOI inhibitors in different ways to actually make it orally active and then if you smoke it it just gets in the bloodstream fast enough that it actually has an effect that's quick that you can kind of um 
see pretty remarkable things in a, in a very quick fashion. There's several forms of DMT. There's the one that comes from plants, which is NNDMT. And then there's 5-MeO-DMT, which comes from a toad, which have a variety of different effects. But what you have to know is it's one of the most potent psychoactive compounds, and they call it either the spirit molecule or the God molecule, depending on spirit molecule being the one from plants, God molecule being the one from the toad. And for those that have experienced these medicines, you'll understand why they're named that way. If you haven't experienced them, it all sounds like a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> sounds <laughs> like, uh, you know, you're just seeing things. But <clears throat> in any case, I've had a lot of experience and that starts to come on. But during this process, the where I'm going with this is that <clears throat> one of the tasks that my guidance, because when you're in there and you get access to these altered states of consciousness, you get access to your guidance. And one of the directives of my guidance was to completely reconcile Chris Marcus, which is my past self, right? Like to bring Chris Marcus all the way up from my childhood to my teenage years, to my college years, to the point where I was 30 and I officially changed my name, like to bring Chris Marcus back fully from exile into my own life. So yeah, you had uh, almost pushed him aside and said, sure. I'm no longer kind of disowned. That. I'm no longer this man. I am now this man, you know? And, and it's cool to create these lines of demarcation based upon a rite of passage. It was after I did ayahuasca and Aubrey was always my middle name. So I just switched to my middle name as my grandfather's name. And um, so it was, a, it was a choice I made for multiple reasons, but nonetheless, it was a line of demarcation. But with it, some of the, that's all positive, but some of the negative was that I kind of disassociated <clears throat> from my past. And I think it was healthy and productive to like actually go through the life of Chris Marcus and love every aspect mm. and every folly and every, mm. you know, every way that he showed up without the impeccability that I have now, without the awareness that I have now, not that I'm completely impeccable now, but like it's, it's a spectrum of growth that like I've been on. You have the level of consciousness. Yeah, the level or? of consciousness, every aspect of my growth, you know, so you kind of want to exile the past, but really there was a lot of virtue in me just celebrating who Chris Marcus was, man. Chris Marcus was someone who was trying really fucking hard. You know, he was trying hard as a basketball player. He was trying hard to please his parents. He was trying hard to date the prettiest girl. He was trying hard to be a poet and to be in love and to share his philosophy and to share his writing. But he was super frustrated because he's ended up selling fleshlight sex toys and he knew that wasn't what he wanted to do with yeah. his life. And he's 30 years old and he knew that Alexander the Great conquered the known world at 25 and he was like what the fuck am i doing i'm selling you know vaginas in a, pla <laughs> in a plastic tube you know like i, I definitely plenty of people that were grateful for you <laughs> i definitely took a left turn when i should have took a right turn and here i am and um but that was all right on the precipice of launching on it and allowing myself to reach the fruition of what i'm here to do which is not only create this company that impacts people's lives but give myself the platform that can reach so many people um, through my own trials and tribulations and triumphs and failures. I love that. And I think everyone listening can relate to that aspect and maybe not everyone's changed their name, but they've, they've, they've disowned, they've tried to distance themselves from their past. I certainly have things that I'm embarrassed about, ways that I acted 
And what like, about the cow that had the giant traps? <laughs> Dude, <laughs> was so small. I mean, you got to kind of look at that guy and be like, that guy was kind of rad. <laughs> that guy needed a fucking hug, though. I mean, that's a perfect example. You know, because in, in, in and I posted about that and it, it was about that. I was like, look at me. And I, and I, and I did, I wanted to, I did exactly what you did. I wanted to disown him. I, I clowned him. Like, look at that guy, uh-huh. you know? Look how sad he is. Yeah. And it and it was like, no, he needs a fucking hug. Mm-hmm. He needs to know that he's okay. Yeah. That all of it's okay. That all of it's blessed. And I think like seeing that picture again, my initial reaction was like, oh, what a clown. It's like, no, like there's so much beauty in him trying to do the right thing. And for, for me at that time, it was, it was working out. That's where I threw myself at, sure. at the, you know, um, unfortunately the, the collateral damage was my relationships were suffering. I didn't know that because I thought I was in great shape and I was being a great example. Mm. What happens? Everyone tells you, dude, look at you, you're jacked, right? Yeah. Just like you said, you're like, oh, dude, yeah. that dude's rad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you get a lot of that and, and there's some cool shit about it. But when you attach to that, like I did, it's like that became like, I had to keep up that facade. I'm that guy. I have to show up as the most fit guy in whatever, the most fit 45-year-old, whatever the fill in the blank is. And so I'm so glad that you shared that story because I think it resonates with a lot of people. Um, And until we make amends and really love that version, all versions of ourselves, I don't think we're taught that. And I think the work that we've done, um, that's really celebrated that we're, we're everything. You know, we have some dark thoughts and some, you know, we're, we're, we're the range of the spectrum. And so I think, um, yeah, I think it's really important for people to get that message that, uh, you don't have to like what happened. You don't have to like the way you acted, you know, but I I think just making peace with it and, 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 and sending that version of you some love is really important. It's essential because that version of you is still a part of you, even if you've changed, even if you've evolved, because every aspect of humanity is a part of you. I mean, that's the deepest spiritual teachings, you know, in that in that one <clears throat> Ramdas meditation that we all listen to in Sedona that really rattled around in your head and your heart in a really powerful way. Thanks, Justin. Yeah. You know, he says the phrase Tatvamasi, Tatvamasi, which is I am that too. And if we look back at our past, like, I am that too, no matter what thing that we did, like, yeah, that's me. And if we own that without judgment, but with love and with forgiveness and with respect and, and, and the truth of understanding that whoever that was, they were doing their best. Like, the, the idea that people are intentionally, intentionally without justification committing evil is such a rare thing. It's like so rare. I mean, even Hitler. Think of like the worst human that everybody points to. Let's point to that guy. And we're not a Hitler podcast, just to be clear right. here. But again, yeah. yes, exactly. Like, like you point to you point to the worst. Like that guy had a bunch of justifications for what he was doing. In his mind, he thought, yeah, I think I'm doing a good thing. I'm cleansing, I'm purifying this race. I'm a, he convinced himself that he was good. Even the, the worst of us, the very worst of us, still convinced themselves that they were good. So 
in a way, like we are always trying to do our best, even if we're really misguided. It's very rare that someone chooses like, I choose the evil option. You know what I mean? Like it feels really good. Yeah, yeah. Like it's like somehow they're just the rage justifies it or their hate or their trauma or something else justifies some way that they they're not looking at it. And so we can really, no matter what we have in our past, no matter what we've done and whatever misguided pathways we've taken, you know, just realize, fuck, like I really was doing my best. And that best, according to my standards and my knowledge now, kind of sucks. Like I can look back at so many relationships and be like, man, I could have done that so much better. <laughs> you know, like I could have, I could have really done that way better. But nonetheless, I couldn't have because I didn't have the awareness and the knowledge that I have now. I had only the tools that I had then. And if you could have, you, you would have. Exactly. And it's that simple. And I think we, we kind of forget that in a lot of cases. And I love that you brought that up because so much of those moments, we really are doing the best. It's just the fucking tools we have at that point and the level of awareness or lack of awareness really creates that you know, whatever the action is from what we're feeling. And it's based on all those things you said, like trauma and and other extenuating circumstances. And it's really, I've recognized it's like just a complete disconnection with myself is when I start acting in ways that are unconscious. Mm -hmm. So as I've settled into connecting with that version of me that is true, I don't have to think as much about what to do. I just do mm. what I do. And it there's like a sense of ease around it. Yeah. Less trying, more being. Yeah. More knowing. Yeah. So let's let's get in. You mentioned on it. Um, that's a big part of your life. Let's let's talk about how that was birthed, because I think that's a pretty interesting story. And I'd also love to know more about where the name came from. So I'm sure that's part of mm -hmm. the narrative, but please share. Yeah. So, you know, I was friends with Bodie Miller, Olympic skier, and we used the phrase on it to describe any time we were reaching or anybody was reaching like that level of capability that we always had, just accessing the potential that is inside. So if he skied a race, whether he crashed or whether he didn't, if he was skiing it to his potential, he was like, man, I was fucking on it. I was on it on the top of that mountain. You know, like I was really... And if I was, you know, if we were playing basketball or if we were, if I was in the club dancing or like, you know, like whatever we were, if we were at the very peak of what was capable for any given situation, being on it was what we used to describe that. And, um, you know, that was, so that's where the name came from. And then the idea for the company just came out of, you know, my stepmother had a lot of experience in supplements. She was uh, the nutritional doctor for a lot of Pat Riley's teams. There's actually a ball from the 88 Lakers over there on the table. And that was a team that she was working with in the, in the, in the 80s. And then obviously the Knicks in the 90s, the Heat in the 2000s. So she understood how supplements could actually enhance the performance of athletes. So I was always getting different supplements. So it was something that I had in my mind. And, um, you know, that's the place where on it started. It started with a conversation I had with Joe Rogan asking him what his favorite supplement would be if it existed. And he said an all natural nootropic. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do everything I can to make the best one that's ever been made. And went out to all the research and all the doctors and everybody and put together a formula that was way too strong, but, uh, I knew it, I knew it worked. And, um, we just dialed it in from there, went through multiple iterations, launched alpha brain, and then started to duplicate that across different form factors of supplements. And then realizing that supplements aren't the only 
necessity for living a healthy life. And, and we really wanted to support the foundation of the human being, which is the body. Started adding in kettlebells and unconventional fitness techniques and function, functional foods and information and uh, the podcast. And then ultimately the book that you have in front of you on the day on your life, which then was the compilation of all that wisdom into a single, you know, into a single source, which we actually compiled everything that you could do into a single day. And I think that was really the thing that people resonate with is that own the day isn't a 40 day plan. It's a one day plan. And it's a day that you can do over and over again. And, um, and that includes, you know, having a glass of wine or, you know, spending time playing with the family. This is not like a, a, a book about restricting yourself. It's about living. It's about living to the fullest capacity of what you, what you're capable of. Um. So, yeah, I love that. So, yeah, here's the book here. If you're watching on the the stream here, uh, and we will link to this in the show notes, and it's going to be part of a giveaway that we're going to do. But talk about the format of the book because I think it's really interesting. I think obviously very intentional. What I love about it is what you just said. There's no rigidity to this. It's like what calls to you. Mm -hmm. Okay, how is it? You know, how are you getting owned by it? Yeah. Right. So like talk about, take us through like what a typical chapter looks like. Cause I think it's really just a beautiful kind of uh, unfolding. Yeah. So you, we basically break the day into different parts. So the start of the day is how you wake up, you know, so how you wake up, if you're getting owned by how you wake up, you're slamming a, you're slamming a cup of coffee immediately before you're hydrated. You're not getting any sunlight on your skin. So you're not setting your circadian rhythm. So you're using adrenaline and the naturally dehydrating effects of caffeine is your first beverage. And then you're going straight into your work or straight into your stress before actually getting the body moving, which also starts the circadian rhythm, which regulates hormone cycles and actually gets you primed energetically to have a productive day. Um, so getting owned is just waking up, having a Pop-Tart, slamming a cup of coffee and going straight to work. That's getting owned, you know, and owning the day is waking up having 12 to 16 ounces of water mixed with Himalayan sea salt or any kind of sea salt, really. And then maybe a splash of lemon for the bioflavonoids and some of the support that lemon can give is from a, from a nutrient perspective. If you don't have the lemon, the most important part is the water and the salt because overnight you'll lose one to two pounds of water weight just from the expiration, exhalation of the moist air that's coming out of your body versus the drier air that you're bringing in. That's why we lose weight overnight. Mm -hmm. Like people think it's like a mystery. Like where did the weight go? Yeah. Like the tooth fairy fucking took it. <laughs> yeah. No, it didn't. You're breathing out wet air and you're sucking in dry air. You know, that's, that's why you lose weight overnight. And if you were in a, a steam room overnight, <laughs> you know, you wouldn't lose any weight, you know, because uh -huh. it would be actually just as moist and you would be hydrating constantly. So um, that's why in dry areas, so if like if you're skiing, for example, that's why you have to like drink more because there's less moisture, there's less moisture in the air. If you're in the desert, you have to drink more because there's less moisture in the air. So every exhale is taking your moist saltwater air that's coming from your body mm. and every inhale is just breathing in dry, um, dry air. So... Yeah, so owning it is is drinking that first, the, and I call that the morning mineral cocktail. It's getting some sunlight on your skin because there's photoreceptors in your ears and your skin, not only in your eyes. And then there's um, then there's movement, which also sets your circadian rhythm. So that's the way to that's the way to own the day. And then there's a section that's called now do it, which talks about like the exact prescription. So 
which will give the formula for the morning mineral cocktail, which I which I already gave, not just the justification and the and the reason why, but this is the formula. This is what you do. These are the types of movement you should do. You don't need to do a full workout, but just get the body moving enough. You know, do a couple burpees, do a 10-minute yoga thing, go for a little mm. walk, go swim a couple laps. It's just basically getting the body moving. Mm-hmm. So there's prescriptions for that. And also the the motivation to do it. You know, you start, so, so why should I fucking do this? Well, do this so that you can be productive throughout the rest of your day, that you're starting the day off on the best footing and know that you have that confidence to push you forward onto the the next phase of the day, whatever phase that is. And um, so that's just how we approach each different section from on on your way, you know, the commute to work, what you're doing while you're at work, what you're doing for lunch, what you're doing for breakfast, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, what you're doing for your workout, what you're doing right after your workout and why it's best to have that glass of wine actually right after your workout before you eat because you're going to feel the effects more with less alcohol so your body's going to have to process less alcohol which creates a buildup of the things that make you feel hungover like acetaldehyde and these different compounds so if you just have a glass of wine after your workout when you have lower um lower blood volume and you're you know have an empty stomach you want to make yourself a cheap date effectively Mm -hmm. just have a glass of wine Mm -hmm. then and then come back you know and connect with your family play with your kids enjoy that and then have dinner and actually delaying the time before you eat. Not great for power lifters or bodybuilders, but it's good for normal people because it increases growth hormone levels and different things that actually are improved. So it's just kind of every little piece. And then obviously talking about sex and talking about sleep and talking about connection and talking about everything that you would want in the entirety of a day and a day that you could duplicate, you know? Mm. And I love... uh the now do it is just like that subtle little nudge because sometimes that's all we need is like now do it yeah now do it and it's just like oh okay fuck i'll go do it and and throughout and i should mention throughout there are just you know little anecdotes of of like your experiences with this there's a ton of data that's not dry so it's it's easy to digest um but it's a really like i what i love about it is it just lays this out it's not this hyper-masculine, go do this to be successful. It's like, this is how you can own your day. And a lot of this shit is pretty easy to do. You just have to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. It's like, here it is. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it's just compiling all of the best information that's available and making it in a way that translates for a reason that people can be like, oh, I get this. I understand. You know, and I think that's one of the the real skills that I have here. I'm not the person on the front lines doing the primary research to discover, you know, lipid profiles and all of these different <laughs> complex things. Right. Like that's not my job, but my job is to look and scan all of the available research and say like, okay, here's where, you know, the general public gets it wrong. Yeah, it's like the Venn diagram, you're kind yeah. of creating the Venn diagram. Yeah, almost. and just kind of put, pulling it all together and say like, all right, this is basically... This is basically what you want to do, you know. And there's there's a lot of variations and and variables that you can you can explore. But nonetheless, like this is these are the basics. This is how to this is how to live the best day you can. Yeah, and, and you obviously talk about working out in there, but I think essential throughout the entire book is this idea of working in and mm. in our culture, men specifically, but women too. We expend a ton of energy and we don't go into the restorative practices. And I know that's something that is so important to you. And, and again, as I've spent time with you and Kyle, it's it's been something that's 
I mean, it's what took me from that guy in the picture with 30 extra pounds of muscle to this guy who softened up, but is much more connected. Yeah, totally. So I love, I love the angle on that. And so people, please do yourself a favor, grab this book. There's a ton of information in there. And as I said, it there's it's laid out in a way that you just do what you're called to and integrate as you feel fit. Don't try to duplicate this day every single day for the next six months. Like mm-hmm. we tend to do shit like that and we fuck it up. And so just mm-hmm. just play with it, have fun with it. Totally. And enjoy the anecdotes. It's not, it's not, it's not binary. You know, like we have that. It's one of the things I talk mm-hmm. about in the book. Like you order the chocolate cake, it's in front of you. You stop yourself after eating half the chocolate cake and push the other half away, that's a win. Like, that's good. You did good. You know what I mean? It's not like a binary thing. Oh, I fuck, I had the chocolate cake. Well, might as well finish it now. (laughs) You know, like we have this weird (laughs) mental thing. It's like, well, you know, like I didn't have it worked out. I'll start again at the first of the month and let me just sit on my ass. Like, no, like go for a walk right now. Like do a couple push-ups right now. Do a couple air squats right now. Like that'll help. You know, like it's, it's it's in a a cumulative thing, not a binary thing of pass fail. And I think that's what people really have to understand. Like every little step helps. And if you do eat the whole cake, fucking move on from it. It's yeah, okay. Exactly. Like let go of that. Exactly. Too. You eat you fucking lick the plate. <laughs> yeah. Go for it, go man. For it. Just enjoy it. You know, enjoy that. Well let's talk about the next book, the one you're working on now. All right. Tell us about it. So it's basically a similar structure in that we're trying to create a map for the human mind and the growth of consciousness. And in order to use that map, we're creating a variation of the hero's journey to help people understand the levels of the growth of awareness and consciousness that's going to allow them to have agency over their mind. Because as I know well from my first few days in the darkness, like the mind versus the mind, you're going to get your ass kicked like repeatedly. The mind is a is a bully. It's a tyrant. It's an amazing tool. It's the thing that allows us to accomplish so many things, but it will ruin us if we let it run rampant. You know, as they say, it's a great servant, but a terrible master. Mm. And the book is designed to help you gain agency over your mind and actually make it your servant rather than having it be your master. And in, in the way that you make it your servant is to become aware of that force that's stronger than your mind, the unborn and undying expression of the witness of the mind, which is what all the Buddhist teachings talk about and all of the great spiritual masters talk about is the part of you that is able to witness the mind and watch it and say like, oh, mind, look at you go. You know, oh, mind, you're quite depressed today. Oh, mind, you're quite anxious today. Oh, mind, you're quite quite angry today. But you can witness that. And as soon as you create that layer of separation as the witness, that's one of the essential steps. Um, But there's a lot of places that you get stuck along the journey. And wherever you get stuck is where you're going to start to compound these pathologies that we know so well, anxiety, OCD, depression, you know, you name it. it. Really, it comes from being stuck at one of these levels of, you know, some form of the hero's journey. Tell me this, what what are you drawing? I mean, I know you're drawing on your entire life experience, but like what are some of the teachings that you're focusing on as maybe giving you some framework as you start to create this this next book? It's it's literally everything. So, you know, the 
majority of what I draw on is my personal experience. Mm, which I love. So for yeah. since I was 18, when I was 18, I went on a vision quest. And that vision Can you quest. Just explain what a vision quest yeah, is. Yeah. So a vision people? quest was, you know, I had a great affinity for Native American culture. And a vision quest was a traditional rite of passage that young men and women would go on. And um, there's many different ways that you can do it. It could be, you know, multi-night stays in, on the land on your own, or it could be um, psychedelic medicine assisted vision quests. And I chose the latter, even though I'd never done any psychedelics or never done anything. Mm. Um, I had access to a shaman who offered uh, psilocybin assisted vision quests in the mountains of New Mexico. And um, at 18, I terrified, I went in there and I was like, I'm gonna do this. And I was a staunch and somewhat angry atheist, having moved from California to Texas and seen how religion just created this judgment and fear and guilt. And it didn't make any sense to me, the dogmatic aspects of religion. So I was like, fuck this. I was like straight materialist reductionist. When you die, you're in the dirt and you're done and that's it, period, game over. You know, But I'm gonna try these mushrooms anyways and we'll see what happens. <laughs> So then I try the mushrooms and then I feel my body evaporate entirely, entirely evaporate. And I'm like, oh man, I got a lot of shit wrong. <laughs> like I really have to reevaluate this thing because whatever I'm feeling now is something that doesn't feel like it's ever going to die and doesn't feel like it's ever been born. You know, and so that was that first moment where I experienced what it was like to be consciousness you know, like any, almost in any, and you kind of mentioned like an eternity and an eternal being. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that's not tied to the body. Like we all know the body's going to die. We have one destination as a body and that's the dirt. Like, mm. so I was right about that, but there's a part of us that's not the body because my body was gone. Like I couldn't even, I didn't even know I was breathing and I'm not sure that I was, I'm sure I was, but like, I couldn't even tell that if I was breathing or not breathing you know, and for anybody who's had their first big psychedelic experience, you'll understand how like mind altering that experience is to to feel yourself in the essence of something that's beyond anything that you've ever known, which is linked to your body and mind. I was just pure awareness and connected to all things as well. And it was such an overwhelming experience that that started me on this experiential quest. Now that was 21 years ago. And for so for 21 years, I've been exploring all of the ways to reach these non-ordinary states of consciousness. And- uh, You get like 18 years on me, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. And it's, uh, <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, I really honestly, it's funny because I, I've learned a lot along the way and grown a lot along the way, but I don't think I've really, I don't think it really ever, settled in until like things take time to really create like the massive amounts of change that you're we're looking not, for. We're, we're not, it's not common for us to accept that either. And so we spin our wheels for right. so fucking long, right. myself included, even in this short two and a half years as I've really been on this personal, you know, this deep inquiry, I'm like, well, I, I got it. To kind of figure it out and it's like no it's like it literally wasn't until about a month and a half ago until like end of january where everything really felt like it came together and it, a big part of it was becoming nobody by ramdas the, yeah. the five-hour audiobook on audible and i listened to that and 
it like finally, like all of his teachings made perfect sense to me. And then I saw the, all, how everything was entangled. All the different teachers that I'd been learning from were saying the same exact thing. And it just simplified mm -hmm. everything. And it's like, oh, and it's not to say that I'm through. It's just, it brought it to like a, the, the kind of the next level almost, mm -hmm. which we both know there are new dragons at this next level. There's dragons at every level. Yeah. And even, you know, I just released a podcast with Ragu Marcus who knew Ram Dass for 51 years mm. and got to meet Neem Karoli Baba. And I, the, the, oh, the Instagram man. post I released uh, yesterday was really funny. Ragu Marcus goes to Maharaji, who's Ram Dass's guru, who he talks about extensively. And it just a being of who just... He was just a being of unconditional love, and that's the best way that they describe in playfulness. And um, <laughs> Ragu goes and asks him through the translator, uh, "Can can you just tell me how to meditate?" And uh, and Maharaji goes, "Sure, meditate like Christ when he was nailed to the cross." <laughs> and Ragu goes, "Okay, <laughs> fucking okay." <laughs> You know, and so he's like, all right, whatever. And then he, he tells Ramdas about that. And Ramdas, Ramdas, you know, goes back and talks to talks to Guru about that. And Guru's like, okay, I'll show you. And he just sits there and like tears start pouring from his eyes. And he just says, and everybody can feel it. Everybody can feel this like presence just drop in as like the Christ, as yeah. he like became the Christ consciousness. And he's like, you don't understand. He never died. He's in love with everyone, you know, and like this moment. And so you hear these stories and it's just so beautiful to see that, you know, even this Hindu guru understood the Christ nature and understands the Buddha nature and understands. And then you get someone like Ramdas who draws from all of these different sources. And you realize there's just many ways up the same mountain. It's basically like, as Ramdas says, you know, Love everyone, tell the truth, which actually is the same fucking thing because truth and love are synonyms. And mm -hmm. if you really trust God, you trust the truth. And that's like a big thing that's super present in my life is like cleaning up the cobwebs of slight mistruth that I have. You know, so like anything that's slightly been unexpressed, any kind of mild lie of omission, because the lies of commission, I've been done with those for a while, mm -hmm. you know, but just kind of holding back a little bit, mm. just biting my tongue a little bit, just, you know, thinking things but not saying them. <clears throat> and this doesn't mean that you have to go, you know, mouth diarying your judgments about things because if you're being, if you're in truth, you have to then have the truth of being like, this is me being a judgmental little bitch and this is what it thinks. Like, that's true, fine. If you want to share that, go for it, right? But understand, you better, you better fucking, you better fucking, you know, start that with, this is me being judgmental and this is what my petty little ego thinks because it wants me to feel better than you. So it's judging you as this and then go for it. Yeah. But you better fucking, you better phrase it like that yeah. if you're going to say that, right? you know, because otherwise you're not in truth with yourself, mm. you know? So I think that's something that people get mis, you know, they misperceive about truth. They think that you're just going to be spewing your judgments. Well, fine. If you want to spew your judgments or work on your judgments, and work on actually not seeing these petty little things, things and seeing the truth. And then you can actually share the truth because it's a lot less turbulent than mm. these kind of fluctuations of the mind. But anyways, that's a, a bit of a digression from the point that I really think that truth, love, and the divine are all synonyms, right? And so 
loving everybody and telling the truth, it's the same thing. Like when you tell the truth, it's an act of love, mm. you know, and it has to be an act of love because like we need the truth in order to grow. Like we can't grow in delusion because mm. all lies, all lies have their foundation in fear. You're going to help somebody by, by pushing your fear on them. No, you're going to mm. help someone by pushing the truth born out of the love for them. Mm. You know, like that's the only way. It's the only way to be a clear mirror. And that's why Ram Dass published the book, Polishing the Mirror. Mm. How do you be a clear mirror? Well, you tell the fucking truth well, <laughs> and deal with the fucking consequences. Well, I love how he, go, he goes to um, Maharaji and he says, he goes, listen, I got a problem about telling the truth. I don't love everybody. Yeah. He's like, all right, love everybody. Then tell the truth. It's yeah, like, oh, yeah. motherfucker, <laughs> you got me. Yeah, exactly. It's so, but it's so simple. Again, we try to complicate shit all the time. It gets really simple when you get to the when you get to the end. It's love. It's and what I really realized too is one of the things you, you want to talk about. Another area where I really fucked things up. Yeah. And when I judge myself, uh, yes, for the past, let's hear it. Which I I forgive. I obviously can forgive myself because, as I said, I'm doing my best, but. One of the things I really did, which was so hurtful for so many people that I was with in relationship, I loved the potential of what they could be rather than the actuality of what they were, like what they are. So I didn't love, like take Whitney, who was my partner for almost eight years. You know, I loved her for the potential of what she could be more than for the actuality of what she is in that moment. And what that ends up doing is it mm. compounds the shame they feel for not being the potential that you see. It's great that you see their potential and you can share like what you see in their potential. But if you don't love them exactly as they are, they're not going to love themselves exactly as they are. So they're not going to look at themselves exactly as they are because they're going to be ashamed of exactly as they are. And so it's actually going to take them longer to get to the potential rather than expediting the potential. Mm. You know what I mean? So mm. it's like, really understanding that the way forward is just to love what is. Like love them where they are and allow that to show them that they're worthy of love and allow them to build that self-love, which then becomes the foundation that's going to allow them to really flower. And so I wonder, just in my own experience, when, when you know, I'm not going to say that I necessarily had that particular experience, but I know when it comes to other people and for me showing them grace, as an example, or really just connecting with them. It often comes when I'm not in a good place with it, it's, it starts with me and that I wasn't okay with me. So I wonder if, is there any correlation there where, sure. you know, I Aubrey heart, wasn't yeah. okay with the the here and now Aubrey? Fuck yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. I never loved the Aubrey now. Mm. I loved the Aubrey at the very blistering extreme of what my potential could be. And I was shown what that, and that's the tricky thing. Like, the medicines showed me what my potential could be mm -hmm. and it was radical and i was shown to me in a variety of different ways and and one of the visions that i remember that was the most profound was me letting out a scream that was so it was like a, a scream that was so pure not a scream of anguish or anything but like a a a, a, vo a, a single note so pure and so from my heart and so from every essence of my being that I could see the whole world just stop for a moment and go, whoa, oh shit, that was pure. You know, and like that was the, that was this vision that I saw. So I didn't love any part of me that wasn't in my mind, you know, doing that. And I was like, oh, well, this, this is just, 
this is me and all my shit and I was very self-critical and didn't love the me of now. I just love the me of what I might ultimately become and I was constantly worried that I wouldn't become that, you know, and that has just done nothing but slow me down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cuz there's the resistance of like trying to get to that place and maybe starting to get there but not quite in the the kind of expedient nature. I this resonates particularly with me because as I said about I think it was like six weeks ago, maybe five weeks ago, I had something, I don't even know if you would call it like an awakening, but but I I had this vision of what is to come. And it was um, not some sort of like psychic vision, but it was, I saw, you know, the podcast, writing a book, creating a lot of co-creating a lot of healing for a lot of men and women. And I saw all this play out in a much grander way than I ever had imagined it. And I had such a sense of ease because it all made sense. And I was okay. I was selling, it was almost like what, what um, Joe Dispenza talks about when you kind of imagine that future and you live today because mm -hmm. it's already happened. Mm -hmm. And again, I think for people listening, they'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? But it's this idea that I'm already, I have this sense of ease that it's already happened. And so I don't need to wait until whatever the metric is for quote unquote success in these different areas for me to feel that it's already happened. And I think, I mean, I think you can speak to that as well. I think where you're coming from today is a more connected place where that vision in the future of you, it's still there, but now it's no longer racing to get there. Mm. You have a different sense of ease about you that you've just settled in and things are just happening. You're writing a book, you're doing fit for service mastermind. You've got your, your wardrobe collection. Mm -hmm. You've got all these things that are going and there's just happenings. Yeah. That's all the easy stuff, honestly. Like the stuff that you're actually manifesting in the outside world, it's, it's um it's easy to really as you saw i mean you accomplished an amazing amount of success without actually reaching the deeper levels of your internal potential mm -hmm. you know and so did i you know and i was i was you know at the same time still working on myself obviously i have been for 21 years in in a certain way but it's not the external stuff that i that i really think like wow look what i did i built this you know 70 million dollar company i wrote this you know, New York Times bestseller, whatever, like, that's not the stuff that that like really was the hardest stuff, or the stuff that really tested me and pushed mm -hmm. me. You know, it, there were tests and challenges, it's not easy to do that stuff. I'm not gonna discredit the amount of effort that it takes to do that. But that's, that's something that we understand. If you're an athlete or anything, you realize, all right, you just fucking sweat, you learn, you get your ass kicked, you get back up, you try something else, you go forward. It's a very young approach that usually gets you to accomplish these things. But when you're talking about your internal growth, it's the opposite. It's like, how deeply can you surrender? How much can you let go? You know, because you're already the resplendent, you know, success. And it's just all of your own delusions and all of the things that are compounded on top that you just have to let go of with love. Just, I love that. I love that. I bless this. I accept this. I surrender to this. And the more you do that, then that's how your internal journey goes. And fuck, it's been rocky for me, you know? Like it's, I've been tested in every way and from 
grief and jealousy and pain and self-judgment and lack of self-love and you know needs for external validation and all of these different things so working through that is really probably you know the, by far the most important and as i've worked on that internal stuff everything else externally has gotten so much easier as well you know it's just like things are moving through me in a much easier way now where it gets challenging is when you find something that you really really want you know like where you really have a strong preference so strong that you're that you're terrified of the opposite Mm -hmm. you know and then you're hooked again and then you're like my life will never be (laughs) will never i'll never be fully happy unless this person loved me or i reached this level or this thing happens and you'll still get hooked and i still get hooked by those things you know and you when you really want something super bad there's a part of you that's terrified of not having it and that's a a really challenging state to exist in you know so i'm still learning how to navigate fully how to surrender with faith to the outcome that's going to happen and understand that i have a lot more control of my internal orientation to that external reality Mm -hmm. than i ever really believe possible that no matter what happens i can still find love and happiness and peace you know Mm. well one of the things that um, I think we both share is we like to put challenges out for ourselves um, that maybe aren't traditional for some people. I think about, for me, like a five-day silent retreat. People are like, why the fuck would you do that? It's like, well, the two that I've been on have been transformational as much as anything, mm-hmm. like getting in that deep stillness created the space for me to go deep within the real me, not just the egoic me, but to see the egoic me and witness him and love him, but to go into like what I really wanted. And and you've also done these things. And so one of the things in particular, you mentioned it earlier, that we really haven't gotten a chance to talk about is this darkness retreat, because it, as you were, you know, you'd gone over to to Poland. So I want to talk about that as well, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are familiar with Wim Hof. Um, so I'd love to talk about that experience. And then from there to the darkness retreat, because that is super intriguing to me. Um, much like, you know, when I heard about the Vipassana retreat, which is a 10 day silent retreat, I felt like the five day was a nice stepping stone for me to see if, it, if I could handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned about the Vipassana when I was at Sedona on this men's retreat with you and Parangi and, you know, Aaron Alexander, they both talked about their Vipassana experiences. So I'd love for you to just share maybe first what the Wim Hof experience was like Mm -hmm. and how that all came together. Um, for anyone who follows you on social media, it was like an amazing trip. It was. And then, um, just talk about the darkness retreat and, you know, kind of give us a little bit more there. Well, Wim Hof is he's really understood that you can use the cold as your teacher. So you use a a point of resistance and a difficult external thing as a way to master your internal landscape. So he uses the cold as his guru. And and he says this, the cold is my guru, the cold is my teacher. Because when you confront the cold, you learn about yourself. You know, you know yourself by testing yourself. It's something that Jordan Peterson talks about a lot. Like that's how you really get to know yourself is by putting yourself in these challenges. And the cold is, you know, this kind of um, merciless but but righteous challenge that you can put yourself in that 
as a hormetic stress or something that creates a positive adaptation, which the cold does, it's actually beneficial for you. But you have talk about just tell people kind of how just what maybe mechanically looks like why it helps you. Yeah. So there's different physiological adaptations that happen when you go into the cold. First of all, there's things that happen with your blood. Blood rushes to the core of your body and then moves out through all the way back out through the skin when you warm up. So circulating blood in that way is going to create a different effect. It influences inflammation and influences a variety of different hormones in, in different ways. There's um, also improvements to the immune system that happen. There's cold shock proteins that are developed. There's lots of beneficial actions that happen from this cold exposure. And so that's why cold therapy is so effective. And anybody who's actually done it can realize like how exhilarating it feels when you get on the other side. But it doesn't mean that when you're looking at that cold tub where you had to break the ice to get in and you're, you know, Fuck. or even if you're thinking about turning that shower nozzle all the way cold, especially if you're from Chicago or someplace mm. where it gets real fucking cold, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of resistance to that. So it teaches you about the willpower to push against something you're afraid of, something you're afraid of that's not dangerous, that's actually helpful. And, you know, that's a big part of it. But layered in with that is the utilization of breath as a tool to help you actually navigate those spaces and actually to use breath in and of itself as a beneficial, you know, both physio physically therapeutic and also emotionally therapeutic, um, you know, action. Because if you're doing breath work, you're going to experience not only the hyperoxygenation, which is going to change your alkalinity, it's going to change your physical state, but you often have massive psychological releases, mass, massive catharsis as you kind of, as you use the breath to just melt some of these barriers that we have built around our hearts and built around, you know, little contained pieces of trauma or unexpressed rage, or it's very interesting going into the breath work, what comes up. And um, so he uses the breath and the cold in combination as two different tools to really access both the internal states of your emotions and the external states and your orientation towards fear and resistance. Mm. So it's a it's a beautiful methodology. And we got a group of 10 to 12, you know, brothers together. Mm. And uh, we started off jumping into a cold waterfall and feeling that and the exhilaration of that moment, then moved on to 10 minutes in an ice tub mm. and then moved on from that into the, you know, seeing how long we could stay submerged under the ice and hold our breath, which was really cool as well. You went deep there. I went deep, how, yeah. What was your number? Two minutes, 17 seconds. Fuck me. And, but, you know, honestly, the, the reason that I was able to do that, so the orientation of that is very interesting because... <clears throat> To get yourself to that state where you can really hold your breath for that long in such an extreme place, you have to drop into like the deepest meditation you can and really calm yourself. Because any kind of resistance, even thought resistance, burns energy and burns oxygen. And so when you really want to drop into that, you can just, you have to drop into stillness fast. And you just allow yourself to just drop lower and lower and lower into stillness. Your heartbeat slows down. Everything slows down. And I'm under the ice and I have two of my brothers there and I'm holding their legs who are in the water with me to keep myself submerged. Because obviously if you're holding your breath, you're going to pop up to the surface. Like, So I'm like, to stay submerged, I'm holding their legs and they're shivering in the water, but, you know, because because they're just, they're there to support me, but I'm in there and I have people counting out the time. So one minute, 
you know, and I was like, oh, okay, good, got this. My heart rate's dropping, I'm more relaxed. Minute and a half, and then they start getting excited, you know, because like minute was minute and a half was really the goal, and they start they start to go bonkers, right? They're like, whoa, and then they're like minute, and I could hear them like getting all excited, all all these brothers, and then they're like minute forty five, and I'm like, oh yeah, and then they're like two minutes, and then they all start like just cheer, like come on, you got this, like everybody's like going just going nuts on the outside, and I have a little smile and probably that smile cost me a couple seconds to be honest but i was like you're soaking it it in i was soaking it in and then i was like two minutes 15 and at that point just that desire for air became so profound that i was like all right now at this point it's time for me to emerge and i emerge out of the water and just give like the biggest you know the biggest radiant smile and, and just gratitude for my brothers all being there for this initiatory practice you know like and here you are i mean you've got you know your eyes are welling up like you're just you're reliving it it's so beautiful to hear you retell it because you're back you're back in the water you're back there man that's and that's brotherhood that's brotherhood that's how you show up yeah yeah every single one of them was supporting me you know it wasn't this like i hope aubrey doesn't go too long because (laughs) then it's going to make me look bad and you know like all this petty competitive bullshit that we're used to we've all done we've all all been there we've got to love that part of ourselves because it was a hurting version of us for sure you know and um and that's uh that's definitely something to all just take a look at with love as well but when you can get to that state where you're really rooting for each other you know that's brotherhood and i think when you're going through these you know, initiations together, that's when this brotherhood and this bond forms, Hmm. you know, and that's why people who go to war together, people who are on sports teams where the stakes are high, you know, you form these bonds of even really hard workouts together, like you form these bonds. Um, So that was beautiful and that I was all leading up to this four and a half hour climb shirtless and up this mountain in Poland called Mount Schnischka. And the you have to put clamp on spikes so you know these clamp on spikes to your shoes on your boots because everything underneath you is ice and the bottom of the climb was pretty chill actually we were laughing people doing fucking instagram lives like look at us we're shirtless in this snowy mountain like isn't this cool you know and then we get to this point where we're about to face the summit and the summit is completely exposed to the wind and that's what Wim Hof calls the whip okay and he calls it the whip because it's 60 mile an hour sleeting wind how and far into the, how many hours in? It's or? about three hours into the hike. Okay. So we're a little tired. We're pretty fucking cold. Yeah. And we're three hours into a, an uphill hike. And we're about to go for the summit, which is another hour, hour and a half with 60 mile an hour sleeting winds. And that was a different thing because that is not a meditation. Like, I don't care how much meditative calm state practice and how Mm. much breath work I was doing. That was a fucking fight. Mm. You know, that was like drawing on really the warrior archetype of like, I'm going to keep going because all my brothers are going to keep going. And like, we're going to make it up this thing together. And again, it was the community that really allowed us to make it through the top. Every single one of us made it through. And I wouldn't have been able to make it you know, if it wasn't for all them. And even there's some literal examples of that. Like at one point, one of my spikes fell off and I didn't realize that it fell off because there was enough snow before I got to the ice that I was walking with, you know, and I lost my spike like 20 yards back and I didn't know where it was. And the sleet was like slamming against me. I wouldn't have lost it. But the next brother up, 
saw me lose my spike and had it. So I was like, oh, fuck, I got a down climb now with one spike oh, on, shit. one spike off. I'm going to be slipping all over the place. The 60 mile an hour wind is going. You didn't playing a lot of hockey, did you? No, I didn't. No, <laughs> I wasn't ready. I didn't. And certainly, even, even if you do play hockey, <laughs> trying to get on the ice with shoes is not actually <laughs> going to be the most graceful thing. You know, you need fucking something sharp. So... Anyways, like the next brother up had my spike and it still sucks. You got to take off your gloves. You know, oh, we had, fuck. we didn't have a shirt on, but we still got to take off your gloves. And I got to, you know, put these cold spikes on my cold ass shoes mm. and my fingers are freezing and then get the gloves back on and then grip my teeth and like keep going up. And to be honest, I don't think that was healthy. Like there's hormetic stress and then there's too much stress, just like a workout. Like if you overtrain, you're going to get sick. Like most marathon runners or extreme like ultra marathon runners, like they're not in good, they're not in better, in a better state when they finish. You know what I mean? They're oftentimes getting sick. They're oftentimes in a really challenged and compromised position. And I think that particular day hiking Shnishka was that for all of us. Like a lot of us had a lot of challenges on the way back, but we also had this sense of pride, accomplishment, resilience, brotherhood, and a bond like it's still to this day one of the most active text groups that I have amongst, you know, my guy friends is we call it Team Ice. And Team Ice, we're always talking shit and hitting each other up. We're still connected every day. Very much like our Sedona group, which yeah, is still special. very active because we did similar things with the heat and the sweat lodge and, yeah. and all of the other different ceremonial practices that we went through together. It really bonds a group together. And I think that's that's something that's you know, maybe the most precious thing that we have is that sense of community. Yeah, and it's uh, it's always great on a random day where you see someone from the text group pops up with something, and you know it's just going to be a litany of different texts and hearts and yeah. exclamation points and ha-has. And it's, yeah. it's um, you're right. Like, that's a way when you're not in the physical presence to really feel connected. And there's, I just think men in general just aren't, aren't used to those types of bonds anymore. And I think if they would look at, you know, the the way we freely use I love you and how we mean it, and it's not like love you, man, or love you, bro, or, you know, it's not bro hugs. They're real. I came in here and we just like embraced and felt each other breathe. And, you know, these are men that are fucking, you know, I'm the smallest one besides Parangi, but they're all big fuckers, bigger than you. And mm -hmm. like when they hug, they're teddy bears. And mm -hmm. it's, so I don't want people to say, well, I work out so I can't give a real good hug. Like, no, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, that's not an excuse. <laughs> I hug Kyle Kingsbury. I guess, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mountain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, again, as, as someone who I've really learned a lot of this practice from, just talk about... Um, tribe for a little bit like what like what is it like these you're the orchestrator of these trips to Sedona like, what's mm -hmm. it mean to you I know what it means to me it's like I get to spend four or five days deep in different ceremonies having coffee in the morning with different people just getting into the weeds on things very you know kimono open just sharing and so as someone who this is your you kind of birthed this yeah, I just recognize it as as an essential missing component of of life. You know, I think we are by nature tribal creatures, mm -hmm. you know, and with with the way that society is structured now, our 
bonding rituals are to go out and get drunk with your homies every once in a while or like a bachelor party where you're all obliterated and you're actually lowering your consciousness and tell you might tell some funny stories and it's cool and it's all good but it's not the same as like going through expansive shared vulnerable challenges together where you're actually exposing the softest tenderest most vulnerable parts of yourself and also pushing yourself in certain aspects and that's i think where you really form this sense of community and brotherhood because you see people not just for their external you know their ex what they're trying to show you on the external you know that avatar that they're putting out of you know yeah i got all, all kinds of shit under control i'm all good i'm funny i'm blah 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 but mm. when you see like what's under the surface the pain that might be under there or the sadness or the self-judgment or the self-loathing or whatever might be coming up you really get to know somebody and you know without a doubt you know every one of us coming out of those trips we just feel more whole you know we feel like full and that's the that's the magic of it you know and to be able to orchestrate that is just um you know it's a blessing to be able to to shepherd that container and um it's something that i'll continue to do for the rest of my life like mm. that's it's funny because I, you know, I think about all of the trips that I've done, and so many of these trips. I was in a polyamorous relationship, so so many of these trips were about like getting all the girls together and throwing a big party, and mm -hmm. you know, you leave those trips exhausted and empty, and maybe with a few smiles about some you know crazy thing that happened. Yeah. But nonetheless, you feel worse when you're coming back from that. But you come back from one of these experiences, and you feel just better, more your complete self, like you've grown, like you've. You, there's just a fullness that you have inside that's that's different you know and it's really incomparable to you know to other experiences that you might have mm, yeah well on behalf of my i'll call them my chicago brothers they're not all from chicago but a lot of them originated with me up in the trading pits in chicago but on behalf of them i will extend a, a debt of gratitude because i've carried on that kind of uh, role within with amongst our group of setting the container where our guys trips aren't golf boozy weekends anymore there we may go to mexico but we're hanging out where you know the 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 armor's off the shield is down and we're you know the the places we've gotten within the last two years is remarkable and everybody mm -hmm. is pushing everyone to continue to share and get there in tears and and you know it's like those tears that's that's where you get to know the real the real guy yep. you know what's underneath it all and it's it only takes one to start mm -hmm. you know and it kind of cracks everyone open it's like oh fuck i've been waiting i've been waiting for that release um and so it's been special but again i want to talk about the darkness retreat because sure and again we can talk about more about it more offline but I really want to know like what the experience was like for you. Well, it's a, it's a whole non-ordinary reality, you know. I mean, I think for some of us who've experienced a sensory deprivation tank, it's a very short immersion into that and it actually cuts off an even one more of your senses, which is the sense of touch because you're floating in the water mm -hmm. and the water is the same temperature as your skin and you can't really feel anything. So that's why it drops you into meditation like so fast because it's complete denial of sense. So it's pitch dark, it's pitch quiet. It's, you know, the same, you don't feel anything. You don't smell anything. You don't like all your senses are cut off. You don't hear anything. 
Um, so that's a good indication of what that's like in the short term. But most times in the float tank, you go an hour, hour and a half, you know, maximum. And it really facilitates a very, you know, usually a, a drop into a meditative state pretty easily. The darkness is a lot slower, you know, because it's what, what, just, Are you in a room? Like, what, so where are you? Like, yeah. set us the... Okay, so you go into a room. It's basically like, um, basically like what you would imagine a hotel room to be. Not quite that nice. It's like a, a room set up with its own little bathroom in a house. Is it a cross between a hotel and a prison cell? <laughs> it's more hotel than prison cell, okay. I suppose, you know, but it's simple. It's it's simple. It's a, in a rustic part of Germany called Sachbenwalden. Um, you can go check it out at darknessretreats.net, I believe. Um, but you go there and, and they've gone through the engineering to actually create complete complete darkness and this is essential because if you have one pinprick of light you'll be fixated on that pinprick of light and so it'll interrupt the experience because there will be a difference between your eyes being open and your eyes being closed so we're not talking about pretty dark like you can't go in your bedroom and do this because that's pretty dark but full dark is a different thing it's a fucking whole different thing it's a whole different thing and then to get food they have a hallway outside and in that hallway, they have double doors. It's completely blacked out hallway. And then they drop the food off on a little countertop. And then they ring a bell when the food's there. And the food's all raw vegan food, which isn't my favorite food to eat. But it made sense because I think if they were serving something too delicious, I would have been waiting like a dog for the dinner bell to come. And, oh, and yeah. so now it's just like, a pile, it's like a pile of, it's a pile of veggies. So you there. if I don't want to fucking, you know, eat right away, like I was like, whatever, I'll get it. I'll get the veggies in a minute, you know, like. <laughs> Um, yeah, but you're in there and, and for the first few days, it's just you wrestling with your mind. It's mind versus mind, you know, and, and I, I have meditation and breathing practices that I would use that could help give me some agency over my mind, like I was talking about, but it was pretty brutal the first few days. And I don't even remember, I don't remember smiling once, you know, for the first few days, it was like, whew. You know, because every every unresolved issue, every open loop, like you have no way to distract yourself. Like oh. for now, for now, you're you're a little you like. Let's say you have something that's troubling you. Maybe it's a relationship with someone in your business, someone in your personal relationship. You can just kind of put that aside, jump on your phone. You know, go out, get a workout, go do something else, watch a show, put on some music. You know, go for a walk. Like there's something you can do. There's nothing you can do. You're just in there sitting in it with yourself and so you go and you play out all of these hypothetical scenarios of how you're going to solve it and what you're going to do and and it's just exhausting it's just exhausting for the first few days uh-huh. and then a very interesting and you sleep pretty well because what happens the first few days that's that's the only real blessing of the first few days is in that much darkness you produce a lot of melatonin so the melatonin is the sleep hormone and that gets kind of flooded through your body and so i was sleeping well, like over eight hours, which is more than I usually sleep. I'm usually about a six hour a night kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so sleeping well. And I only knew this because I was wearing the aura ring, which is obviously emits no light. And mm-hmm. I could keep that on for my time in the darkness. So oh, great. Um, <clears throat> I was saw the first two nights sleeping like eight, eight and a half hours and, you know, taking little naps throughout the day. And it doesn't matter, day, night, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Uh, and then somewhere around the night on day three, I started to get these, this 
flashing light that started coming into my eyes, which happened a little faster for me than it happens for most people. Usually that's around day five. But for me, it happened day three, perhaps because my brain was kind of primed for receiving, you know, these kind of, or getting this DMT access or for whatever reason, I don't know, whatever my yeah, endogenous nature. Yeah, because you had the experience with deep meditation and the psychedelics and fill in the blanks. Could have been any of it. Could have been any of it. Hard mm-hmm. to know. But anyways, you start getting that. And that's where it got really interesting because I started having ayahuasca level visions and those ayahuasca level visions, not peak ayahuasca where everything's just kind of like rushing at you and vivid, you know, like vivid, vivid color. And you're like, whoa, what the fuck? But like twilight level ayahuasca visions where things are just swirling in your mind and this light is flashing, boom, 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 boom. And they say that the melatonin is part, you know, of the conversion process into the DMT is somehow that that's, you know, what is necessary for the brain to produce that level of DMT is a flood of melatonin at that level. Hmm. That could be accurate or not. I'm not a molecular biologist, so I don't know the <laughs> pathways that that's happening. But regardless, that's where it got really interesting. And then from day three to six, that was where it was like I was in a constant perpetual ceremony, a ceremony that never ended. And... I mean, it was it was unreal in its both gentleness and its power because there's no substance that you're taking. So you're having visions while you eat, you're having visions while you shit, you're having visions while you shower, you're having visions while you stretch, you're having visions while you do push-ups, you're having visions the whole fucking time. And so you start to understand that state okay. in a so much deeper level. It sounds exhausting, but you actually settle into it. You do in a way, but it but things are coming and revelations are coming and like understanding is coming. And then then for me, like first one first, like around day five, that's when like I woke up and I was angry. I was angry. There was some anger there. And I was like, I'm fucking it. angry. And I couldn't really place it and I didn't really know, but really anger comes from you know, places where you've let your boundaries be pushed too far, mm-hmm. you know, where you haven't held that loving boundary and mm-hmm. said, you know, this is, this is enough, or you haven't spoken your truth. And there was probably lots of sources. It wasn't like one exact mm-hmm. place. So I had to process through my anger. And then that's when it opened up, opened my understanding to, you know, love. Love started to come in after I was able to purge the anger. And then with that love came the sadness, sadness of my inability my kind of relative inability to feel that level of love at a one of the things that was really profound was recognizing that even with my mom who's loved me as unconditionally as any human being can you know i mean as a story about my mom you know i've had obviously a lot of success in the world so now people go up to my mom and say oh aren't you proud of your son aubrey and she'll look at him and with a quizzical look and go what do you mean i've always been proud of aubrey mm-hmm. Well, I'm proud of him now. He's got this book and this podcast. Like, you got it all wrong. Like, Beautiful. I've been proud of him from the start. You know, and she's always loved me that way, but I didn't love myself enough to really let her love me. <laughs> you know, I didn't even let my mom love me. I get that. You know, I didn't even really let that love in. And that just washed over me and I just started to weep. You know, I just started to weep like, wow, I didn't even really let my mom love me. And then I, you know, you know recognition of the ways that like i said before like i'd loved whitney for the potential of what she could be rather than loving her for who she is and 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 all the the judgments and the grievances that i've held against her when really she was just doing her best you know and i had a vision of her that really 
that was really like the heartbreak, like the the vision that just crushed me, you know. And this vision that crushed me was, is as I said, we're having visions, and I have some lighter visions, but this one that crushed me was, I saw Whitney and I saw her, and I saw her in the way that I've wanted to see her, which was she had this crown of feathers and she was emanating this radiant divine light. And I saw her in this way, the potential that I've always seen in her to embody her divine feminine and and to hold that. She's obviously like us, you know, she's a powerhouse of force and fire and beauty, but I've always seen this, you know, radiant, this radiant side of her, like really embracing the deep feminine that's within her. And she was looking out, I was like, wow, Whitney. And then she keeps looking down at herself. And looks at me and goes, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? And I was like, fuck. Like, fuck. I contributed to that. You know, I contributed to the idea that she wasn't doing it right. That she could have been something better. And she should have been something better. And so in that vision, it just showed me how the fact that I didn't love her for exactly as she was, but I loved her for what I wanted her to be, was actually a great antagonistic force in her life. And that was, you know, really hard. It's hard to like come to terms with that fact. And I know I did my best and I do, I can totally forgive myself because I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. But that understanding has completely shifted my orientation towards not only her, but everybody you know and, and just understanding like i gotta love them as they are you know that's that's the only of everybody as they are and um that's the medicine you know that's the medicine that i can serve and uh so those those were really profound and when i and love myself in the same way and, and when i really felt that you know people ask like you know did the darkness break you and uh and the darkness didn't break me until it fixed me, until it put me back together. And when it put me back together and I felt the love of my life and I felt the love of the world and I felt the love of my mom and I felt the love from everybody around me, I really let it in. Then the darkness broke me because I just wanted to get the fuck out of there. I wanted, to, I wanted to call my mom and make sure she was okay. I wanted to tell everybody how much I loved them. I wanted to, I was like, let me out of here, please, you know, and I, and I ended up staying in another full day just to let all of this kind of sit in and integrate. Um, but it was an incredibly powerful experience, you know, with, and I could list off another 20 visions I had that were powerful along the way, but that was the most profound thing. Most profound thing was at the start, you try to think about all of the external things you can fix and all the ways you can say things. And then at the end, it was like, no, nah, it's simple, bro love your life, love everything as it is. And if you want to change something, change it, but it doesn't matter. You changing something in the external is not going to change anything in the internal. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So that's really the, that's really the truth. And I think a lot of times we get lost in that and sure external changes can help, mm -hmm. you know, but it's not really the thing that, that is the most important thing. Like you go like, I'm going to be a minimalist and I'm going to declutter all my stuff. That helps for a little while and that's going to be good. But if you don't declutter your internal yes. self, you're still fucked. Yeah. You know, you've done nothing. You just have a smaller house now. Yeah. Like <laughs> exactly. it, it doesn't yeah. matter. You've got more room. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. Like fundamentally, it doesn't matter until you actually work on the internal stuff. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. I'm glad I 
kind of went back to the darkness. That was yeah. beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. And I have a couple questions. One was was going to be, you know, uh, when I'm on retreat, I take a lot of notes, and I had just spoken to someone who had uh, gone on vipassana. Like we can't take notes. Da 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 da. da. And I thought, well, well, that's interesting because I have pages and pages of notes that I take, but it's all kind of fucking nonsense because I'm just looking for the nugget. Like what you pulled, like you don't need notes for that. Nope. Like you feel it viscerally. It's in, it's in your body. Mm. And so I love that. It's a great reminder to me, but also I'm curious now that you're back, like how have, how have you let your mom love you differently? Like how is, how does that change for you? Or is it, is it just an awareness around it? Is yeah. it a different way you hold her when you embrace? Like, what does that look like for you? I think it's just really being present to it. And it is awareness, but it's also presence. Mm -hmm. You know, it's now that, now when I'm with my mom, I'm really with her. My mind's not, because some part of me, even though I loved going over there and seeing her, I certainly haven't, didn't see her enough. And I've, I've increased the frequency with which we spend time together. But it's the it's the radical presence of really being there because a lot of times we're with our family or we're doing something and we're thinking about what we're going to do when we get home thinking i'm thinking about that newsletter i gotta write that email i gotta answer that person i gotta talk to that lover i want to see this thing that i need to do this but now when i'm there i'm like no 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 i'm like i'm just gonna be here with my mom and it also shifts like the orientation to if i'm looking ahead at the trips i want to take you know like i want to go somewhere with my mom like I want to like go travel somewhere with mom and go have fun there. Like we put all this priority on a type of love that's going to yield a, a type of thrill for us. And for me, that thrill was always sex. So I was like, oh, well, I'll go anywhere in the world for with this girl who's going to, I'm going to be able to ejaculate with, you know, but the love that I would feel there is only a fraction of the love that I could feel if I just spent that time with my mom. You know, and just really like soaked in. We forget that. And it's the same with like going on this trip with with the guys, right? Like yeah. there's a love you feel there that's that enriches your life in a way that's more profound than these kind of empty, vacuous experiences that you can seek because of the thrills of both validation and pleasure that you might get from a for a temporary time, but it's not gonna fill you up the same way. Awesome. Okay, so we're running out of time. I want to finish with this last piece. And uh, before I came down here, I was talking to a good friend of mine. And I said, hey, I'm heading down to, to podcast with Aubrey. And he's like, I really loved his post for his birthday. I was like, fucking, I totally forgot about that. There, I was really moved from like, thanks for reminding me. So I had it down in my notes. I'd love for you, again, we're short on time here, but just share, and your birthday is what, what's the date? February 28th. Look at Aubrey's, uh, if you haven't seen it, go back to February 28th. And so you'll get a little more context for this and even hit pause right now. Go read the post because it's really, it's a beautiful post and it's, um, I'll let you kind of talk about it, but I, it really, it really hit me as someone who, again, we talked about earlier, just loving all the versions of ourselves and mm -hmm. just recognizing how, as Boyd would say, the path of not here informs the path of here. Yeah. You know, Boyd Vardy, who's, been a guest on both of our podcasts um so anyway please just share a little bit about that post well the it was the, the first part of that post was a video that was compiled from a professional videographer a guy named josh william who put together a video of me on my 37th birthday and for that 
birthday, I like rented out a club. I got a beer pong table. We had a kettlebell that was made of ice. We got a dope DJ. I had, I was, I was in the throes of my polyamory. So I had three of my girlfriends there, you know, all at the same time. And I'm mm-hmm. dancing with them and I'm sinking beer pong cups and I'm howling at the moon and I'm snarling and I'm dancing. And you are mean mugged. <laughs> I for sure mean mugging. And and really feeling that, you know, feeling that moment. And sure, was it fun? Yeah, that night was fun. But that night was then really like a very interestingly was like the peak of that experience. And then for the next two years has mostly been a grueling constant kick in the nuts you know of just like every heartache every pain every struggle every challenge that i could ever possibly imagine that was you know because of this life you know lifestyle that i was choosing to live which was pushing all of this energy out trying to maintain all these relationships trying to maximize and and the relationships were all beautiful and i don't regret any of it but nonetheless that phase of my life as fun as it might be for one of those nights, the suffering that was that it in, you know also had surrounding it was immense, you know, and to really recognize that that all right, I did that thing, you know, I really did that thing, and I know that maybe for a time that was track, and now it's not track, you know. Again, to use what you said with Boyd, it's not my track anymore. It's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in. A different thing so you slide to the next carousel and what i decided to do for my birthday 39th birthday this year was to facilitate breath work with uh my medicine sister anahata and just be of service and i'll tell you like i woke up that next morning and i felt so good and mm-hmm. i was clear-headed and just full-hearted and the sun was shining and i was like this is the life man this is the fucking life like that other thing yeah all right it was fun for a while but this is this is what really nourishes me and you know that's what i'm looking forward for the rest of my life you know i've set the intention that i want to be you know my biggest goal is to be the one who enjoys the second half of his life the most you know and i know that the enjoyment of the second half of my life is not going to be what's shown on the first slide it's going to be in fuck i'm not going to say i'll never do that again or i'll never party but the the real enjoyment of my life is going to be those acts of service and those acts of you know, those you know initiations with my brothers and mm. perhaps if i'm you know if i'm blessed you know a partnership with a partner that i can really deepen a relationship and admiration and love and growth and um you know that's what i'm calling in for the the next phase of my life i love that and i think that is uh i think that's going to land for a lot of people it certainly does for me that's been how I've looked at the second half of my life, I think objectively people would look at the first half and say, well, you had it pretty fucking good. I said, yeah, on the outside I did. I had all the things that you, you know, accumulate. Mm-hmm. I had a, I have a great wife, you know, but the relationship wasn't great. I have great kids, but my relationship with them wasn't great. You know, now it's, it's, it's different. And so like you, I'm intent on blowing that first chapter out of the water and I'm well on my way. And it's to your point, it's like connecting back to what, like what's not externally what's real, but what's real with me, yeah. the real me. Yeah. And so I love that. So thank you. I love you. Thanks I for love showing you too, up the way you show up and for being a leader for all of us. And dude, just so much love for you and just gratitude and 
And thanks for showing up today. Of course, man. I'm so glad that you have a podcast. You've always been, you know, such a good friend and in, in your willingness to just ask questions and and help help me explain and explore these ideas that are going on. I mean, mm -hmm. we've had probably unrecorded podcasts 10 times in our relationship, you know, where me, you and Kyle are just sitting down yeah. and just talking and exploring all of these things. So I'm just really happy you're doing this and, you know, happy I got to sit down here with you today. Yeah. I'm glad we got this one on, on uh, record. For no everyone. doubt. No doubt. Glad we, glad we hit record on this one. Love you, brother. Love you too, brother. You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, please check out the show notes or head on over to thegreatunlearned.com for additional episodes and information regarding events and retreats. If you liked what you heard today, click subscribe and share this with friends that might enjoy our platform. Please leave a five-star rating in iTunes as this really helps us spread our message. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at BunkerCal and on Facebook as John Callahan. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon.